Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. For the first half of the show, I was joined in studio by Owen Burke Kennedy and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times to talk about an ESRI report and its warning that Dublin's dominance is bad for the Irish economy. You'll also hear them talk about AIB's latest appearance in front of the Oireachtas Finance Committee on the tracker mortgage scandal and Donald Trump's impact on the global economy one year on from his inauguration. In the second half of the show, you'll hear from Joe Brennan, the Irish Times markets correspondent, who's rubbing shoulders this week with the global elite at the World Economic Forum in Davos. But we'll start closer to home and the ESRI is warning that Ireland's economy is increasingly being sucked into Dublin at the expense of other regions. Now, Owen, you were reporting on this ESRI report about uh, the Irish economy and notably about Dublin's dominance within the Irish economy and some warnings that perhaps if uh, if it's allowed to continue unfettered, we could be in a, a pretty unsustainable position in a few years' time. Yeah, um, maybe not something we all didn't know, but um, the Eyes report yesterday sort of suggested that um, the Irish economy was being kind of sucked into Dublin at the expense of the other regions. What do they mean by that? Uh, well, I suppose, uh, you know, they mean that there's a high, high, increasingly higher proportion of the population and economic activity is taking place in mm. and around Dublin. So at the moment, about 50% of economic activity in the country is taking place in and around Dublin in the east um, so it's about forty percent of the population. Forty percent of the population, and they project that that will rise to about forty-one point seven or so percent uh, by twenty forty, which doesn't seem that much. But when you look at the actual figures, when you look at the active figures, it means uh, the population will rise from one point nine million in two thousand sixteen to two point three million in two thousand and forty. That's in and around the Dublin region. So essentially, what they're saying is this. this Dublin dominance is, is is creating a gap between the capital and other parts of the country, something that we probably already knew. Uh, but also it's creating greater levels of congestion in the capital itself, uh, greater pressure on housing. And all this will eventually start to impinge on headline growth. That's the essential paradigm. Yeah. Uh, Cliff, perhaps nothing new in all of that, really, in that, you know, you only have to sort of see what you can see with your own eyes the traffic congestion that's really starting to build up in Dublin especially coming in from other counties now uh, if you start heading uh, south for example sure. down to Cork or, or Limerick you can see every evening there's there's yeah, significant yeah. congestion and we know about the housing crisis that's been well flagged and we know that uh, there are more jobs being created in Dublin than other parts of the country so what's new in this report? Well I guess it, I guess it puts numbers on 
what our eyes and our senses have been telling us uh, as you say when you drive on the M50 some evenings which uh, we all try and avoid but you wonder you know is there going to be some wet Tuesday in the middle of February when the whole thing is just going to stop because it gets so I think congested. it already has stopped in a few evenings Indeed indeed and you, all it seems to take is, is now a couple of accidents and, uh, and, and the thing is, is virtually stopped I mean a couple of things struck me from the report one was uh, that it mentioned that 11 counties around Dublin are now part of the wider commuter belt uh, which does suggest that a lot of families are having pretty, you know, miserable lives in terms of commuting into Dublin. Okay, yes, and, and there aren't, we should say, there aren't 11 uh, counties that are contiguous with Dublin. Absolutely. This is counties beyond counties, yeah, yeah, almost. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, okay, there are rail links and decent bus links for many, but a lot of people are, are stuck in cars coming in through the M50 uh, or, 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 or whatever, so, which... which which, which is poor from a lifestyle point of view and I guess brings up the whole point about building in the city centre and whether we need to go up more and, and how we actually accommodate people living more in the city rather than creating this uh, increasing urban sprawl. I guess the, the key point of the report or one of the interesting things was that the authors make the point that none of the other cities have developed to an extent to really provide a counterweight to Dublin and this is something that policy has to has to address. So that we have Cork and we have Limerick and they both attract, you know, some investment. Galway, uh, they, they all attract some investment, they all attract some jobs. They've all done okay from the economic boom. Uh, unemployment has fallen in all these places and in, in, incomes are going up. But in, in a real sense, they aren't a counterweight to Dublin. And what the authors are saying, well, look, we need investment in these places. We mm. need infrastructure investment, we need housing investment. But we isn't the government working on such a plan? It is, and uh, we're still waiting to see it. Uh, so the, the, the National uh, Spatial Planning uh, is now out to uh, consultation, uh, and we expect to see the final report published shortly. And we also uh, are waiting for the big government capital investment plan, which is going to back up where the investment is go, going to go on the basis of regional development. Mm. But I think one of the real questions for politicians are, wh- whenever you start talking about investment outside Dublin, everybody wants their share. All the TDs are going to be looking for a share, uh, you know. So we're not only talking about if money's going well, that's to the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's well, local politics the point. at play. If, if money's going to Cork, then Limerick's going to be looking for it. Galway's going to be looking for it. If money's going to those three, then Sligo's going to be looking for money. And I think one of the points in this report is that we have to choose a few places to invest mm. to provide a real counterweight to Dublin. If the new capital plan, the new spatial plan, involves throwing a small amount of money all over the place, remember the old regionalisation plan where we had government departments going to all kinds of places that we actually have to yeah. we actually course, I've have to pick a couple of columns about this column in, in which in which in which I've suggested that uh, Cork and Limerick might be the idea maybe Galway as well include. Yeah. so you have a corridor I mean it's not just Dublin anymore it's greater Dublin um, on the absolutely. east coast so maybe we should have a corridor some sort of economic yeah. corridor on the west coast I think, that makes, I, I think it makes sense uh, but there might be those in Sinn Féin who argue, of course, that Belfast uh, might absolutely. be the, the yeah, obvious counterbalance in and, a, uh, a 32-county jurisdiction. That's right. And one of the points of the, national, uh, the, the draft national planning framework was that a lot of the areas for development were south of a line between Dublin and Galway, yeah. and very little money was appeared to be allocated north of that, for example, Sligo and Donegal and places like that. So you're going to see politics come into play here. But I think what you're saying makes sense. You can't hedge your bets. You've got to, you've got to put your money or a significant part of your money into providing a yeah. counterbait. We are whether it be Cork, whether it be Cork Limerick, whatever way you, you choose to slice and dice it, you can't put small bits of money everywhere. It's sure. a big problem, uh, Kieran, that you know a lot of the new wave of FDI coming into the country is so Dublin centred. 
I mean, in the, IT, in the IT sector, a lot of the firms want to be beside Facebooks mm. and Googles, and they really have a problem spreading it out. And I mean, you know, we're not getting the kind of intels coming in. We're taking up big regional locations anymore. Yeah, mind you, a lot of financial services activity now is spread outside Dublin. I think something like 30 or 32 percent or something mm. of financial services, international financial services activity is, is outside Dublin. Yeah. It is. I think I think Owen's right. I think the, the reason for that is uh, is largely availability of people. Uh the Googles and the Facebooks come to Dublin because all the other big tech companies are there. There's, there, there's people, there's and there's people they can Hold hire. One second, like a lot of the people who are working for Google and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, they're foreign nationals. That's true. Yeah, that is they're true. Not, too. They're not locals. Yeah, they're yeah, foreign nationals. Yeah. But we, but we do need some strategy to get some more of those companies to locate yeah. elsewhere in the country. Now it's interesting. There are different models around. There are different models around Europe. I mean, London is a big contributor. Yeah. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know if you know, Cliff, what what contribution um, London makes to the UK economy or even to the English economy but if you look at Germany or, or maybe the Netherlands um, and yeah. they're a bit more dispersed Germany has a lot of big large cities yeah. uh, with activity different types of activity going on in them. and of course we know that uh, for example in the Netherlands yeah. you have uh, Amsterdam Rotterdam Eindhoven etc again all with different types of activity yeah. going on but all you know of a, a similar uh, a similar size and The Hague is the administrative capital sure. of, of the Netherlands so which which kind of which kind of model is better well I guess the difficulty is we're probably going to have to create our own kind of model because a lot of what's happened in other countries really is a, is a function of history. Mm. So, you know, Ireland kind of missed the Industrial Revolution. We don't have the big heavy industries that Germany has. But obviously, there are different heavy industries located in different parts of the German economy, the motor industry, the engineering sector, huge employers, huge generators of wealth. And uh, we never got, uh, you know, we don't have that history, if you like. So we have to find, I guess, ways, specialities, yeah. Actually, I've looked at London is 22%. 22%. Well, that that sounds about right. And it's just as big an issue in in England as it it is with us, the gap gap between North and South. Owen, before we move on, any recommendations, specific recommendations from the ESRI as to what the government should do? Well, I mean, just in relation to this lopsided development, it it emphasises what Cliff just said, which is scaling up the second tier cities. Okay. And that re- requires a lot of investment in infrastructure and housing in water and all those different things, which is, I suppose, easier said than done, as we know. Yeah. OK, let's talk about uh, track mortgages. AIB was in front of the Oireachtas Finance Committee. This is uh, another in a sort of a long line of appearances before the committee by various uh, banks and regulators and so forth. Bernard Byrne of AIB was uh, the man under the spotlight yeah. and you were covering his own. He admitted that AIB probably earned around €100 million Euro or so uh, by not applying the correct uh, rates to uh, people's mortgages or by denying people uh, tracker mortgages after the crash uh, in 2008, uh, which, you know, it's a big sum of money, uh, obviously, but this whole debacle is going to cost them €190 million to cure. So, And, of course, there's uh, untold reputational damage. It's hard to put a value on that. Mm, yeah, um, I suppose to most people €100 million doesn't probably seem that much uh, in terms of uh, what everyone thinks the bank was making out of that there's been a figure bounced around that cumulatively all the banks probably took about a billion uh, back so it's hard to know where this 100 million fits in but under questioning from uh, Solidarity TD Paul Murphy he, he was asked to estimate just you know how much AIB's income had been boosted by this debacle and he suggested around 15 to 20 million a year in several years after the crash uh, cumulatively, he actually said that probably amounted to 50 to 100 million. So the 100 million was the upper level, which he reckoned. Um, however, he was also keen to point out, uh, perhaps controversially, that in the context of a kind of 1.3 
billion uh, squeeze on uh, the bank's income. This wasn't a lot of money for the bank. And his point was, if you, the inference being that if the bank had really wanted to deliberately defraud customers, it might have focused resources on a more lucrative area. That's cold comfort, I suppose, for the customers who were affected. Well, it certainly is. And uh, Cliff, extraordinary as well that he admitted that the bank never sought any legal advice when removing customers from these tracker contracts. And yet uh, the legal eagles seem to be, well, they're being blamed by certain commentators. I'm not looking in any particular uh, direction, Cliff, um, as as part of the reason why the banks have been so slow to actually address this issue. Yeah, yeah well, I've been blamed by the central bank itself. Uh, and I think the minister have both accused the banks of taking an overly legalistic approach to solving this. I suppose a couple of things, uh, a couple of things strike, strike me uh, reading the AIB testimony. The first thing is that we still don't really know uh, as you said, what, how this happened or why it why it happened? Uh, why it happened at so many banks in such a similar exactly. way in, in each case? And, and who made the decisions? And you know, was the decision made at a high level in the bank that this would happen on a wide scale, or or, or how did it, how did it actually happen? Or actually, none the wiser uh, in terms of that. And, and we are talking in, in AIB of uh, nine thousand three hundred, nine thousand four hundred accounts. So, you know, we're not talking about a small mm. number. Well, uh, so I mean, Bernard Byrne did seem to be suggesting yesterday that it was partly down to system failures and and a lack of process. Yeah, but you know, systems are set up by people and processes are run by people. And when something happens on that kind mm. of scale, and not only in AIB but it happens yeah, across the industry. It comes back to this, Cliff. I mean, people want to know, was there collusion across the yeah. banking sector in relation to this? And we really haven't had a satisfactory answer to no. that from anybody, including the regulator. No, we haven't. And I think, you know, if you look at the the numbers and the recompense part of this, we are possibly Nearing getting the to end. the bottom of this story now. I think the banks are close to having a handle on how many people are involved. The repayments are underway. There are no questions they're going to happen. I'm sure there'll be some rowing around the margin, but nonetheless, that's underway now. But the central bank has, has has indicated that it's going to continue its investigations. It's going to look at the role of particular individuals and and, and look at the look at how how and why this happened. And that's really the bit, as you say, where we we've absolutely no answers. We don't know what the decision making process was. We don't know in terms of the banks talking to each other. Mm. It does seem very strange that it happened right across the industry. Uh, at the and same for those time, people who lost their homes, Cliff, they I mean I'm sure they want to know: Will any individual be held accountable for this? Yeah, yeah. well, remains to be seen. Um, you wouldn't be holding your breath, I suppose, on the basis of, of, of recent history uh, in terms of that happening. Um, I think Philip Lane said himself that when the, from the evidence the central bank have so far that they can see that you know a lot of middle-ranking officials were, were involved in doing this. But what isn't clear and what they're investigating now is where the decisions were made and who made them. Uh, and, and who gave the direction for this to happen. Uh, but, you know, isn't it strange that it happened right across the industry? And I think also, isn't it strange that nobody picked it up uh, in the central bank? Uh, I, and I think, you know, there are questions to be answered in the banks, but also maybe questions to be answered in the regulator. Why wasn't this picked up? Was there any element of turning a blind eye to it because the banks were in such difficulties? The whole uh, priority was to was to get them back into profitability, uh, to get them back from the dire state they were in. You know, what, were any decisions taken to, to to let this ride for a while to deal with it more slowly yeah. than maybe it should? Be? I think there's a you know yeah. there's a lot to a be, up, to be of, asked uh, with answered here. Just interject a number of um, you know people made the point yesterday that you know the the banks paint a very kind of benign picture of how this happened and and and, and how it evolved. But at various points yesterday, TD said to Mr. Byrne that uh, on several occasions, you know, disgruntled customers had come in complaining about that this was going on. So they couldn't have been unaware that this was a brewing scandal. 
So let's just talk about AIB and some of the numbers own uh, just under nine and a half thousand uh, people impacted at AIB. Uh, something like 14 customers or, or customer accounts affected with losing their homes. Did he give any indication as to when all of those people are going to be redressed? And, and if that's the absolute height of it for AIB or will there be more cases to follow? Well, we, we, we thought it was the height of it last year when it was half that number. But on the 14 people, um, the 14 customers, I should say, that lost their home, the, that came about basically on, on, on the grounds that they fell behind in arrears and they were forced into selling the house. Uh, they've all been compensated, albeit two uh, customers have uh, are basically um, objecting or at least uh, challenging the compensation that was offered. Right. So the number that AIB have now are, is 9,348, which is about a third, well, less than a third of the total. So whether that finger, uh, figure is going to go up, um, they're saying in, the indications are that if it does, it'll be by a smaller quantum than we've seen before. Yeah, sure. Okay, finally, Cliff, uh, we're going to talk about Donald Trump. It's a year on from his inauguration. Uh, you've written a column in the Irish Times today pondering uh, what that year has uh, has meant and what it might mean for us into the future. Uh, there was all sorts of gloomy predictions yeah. uh, at the time he took office in the White House about what it was going to mean for the US economy and the global economy and growth and Absolutely. so on and so forth. In fact, it's been pretty good because the US uh, stock markets are at record highs. I think we've had 80 records sure. um, set since he took office. And the IMF, uh, only in the past week has upgraded its forecast for world economic growth to 3.9% for this year and that's the highest since 2011 and of course he got his tax reforms through which uh, is a major boost to his policy platform yeah. and we've also seen the likes of Apple and so forth now say that they're going to sure. uh, invest a lot of money into the US economy so Donald Trump he's doing okay He is I mean and I've got abuse from both sides of the argument having written the column which maybe is maybe is a good sign but uh, look I suppose one part of the argument is he was lucky in, in terms of the time he took over. There was a bit of momentum in the economy. A few things went his direction in terms of oil prices. Okay, okay. And but Paul Krugman. Uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. A, a Nobel, a, a Nobel uh, economist, Nobel winning economist uh, suggested that within a month of yeah. Trump taking office that US stock markets would crash. Sure, and, and, and never recover, I think was a phrase he used, although he subsequently apologised for using that phrase. But I guess everyone looks, you know, we all look at this through our own ideological prism or whatever. And, and certainly at the time of his election forecast where the dollar was going to crash, the markets were going to have head into a very nervy period uh, and there were threats to growth. And I guess we, what we've learned maybe over the last year is to look at what he what he does rather than what he says. So a huge part of Trump's agenda when he took over was trade, uh, imposing tariffs on China and other countries that were trading unfairly, tearing up the NAFTA agreement, which covers trade with Canada and Mexico. Pulled them out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah, he did that, in fairness, uh, possibly pulling out of the World Trade Organization, all these things. In reality, he's talked tough on trade. He did impose some sanctions uh, just this week, uh, some tariffs Mm. on imports from China, which is which is mm. interesting on uh, washing machines and so on. Well, there panels. is a renegotiation of NAFTA taking place. There is indeed a renegotiation, but he hasn't pulled out of it. He's still in the WTO despite all the, all the talk. So I, I guess the fears on that side have, have so yeah. far proved unfounded. Whether that will continue to be the case or not, I don't know. And on the other side, uh, businesses haven't worried too much about that uh, and, and have responded well to, and I think this is the bit that people maybe didn't foresee at the time of his election, have responded well to his talk of cutting regulation and bureaucracy. Yeah. So this rule that to, uh, you know, any any uh, any state or any federal regulation, any new federal regulation being introduced 
two, two others had to be abolished, the two for one rule. Uh, that's gone down well. That seemed to have gone down yeah. well with businesses. Uh, consumers have ignored all the talk about trouble in the White House and Russian inquiries and North Korea and all that and just got on with it. They've seen their incomes rising. Jobs haven't risen maybe as quick as they did during the Obama administration, but they're still they're still on the up. Yeah, still good. And for the stage of the cycle we're at, economic growth is very yeah. quick. But from, from an Irish point of view, I suppose the tax uh, situation, you know, the fact that he slashed corporate tax to, what, 21% um, yeah. and that companies like Apple can now bring home yeah. their, their tax and I think they're only going to be all this stash of money that they have yeah. abroad and they're only going to be charged, what, 15 and a half percent and a half, uh, on yeah, it. So there's yeah. a real incentive for them to do that and to invest back into the US yeah. economy. I just wonder, long term, what's that going to mean for Ireland and for US investment? Yeah, I think a lot of uh, officials, uh, government officials and accountants and, and experts are kind of scratching their head and, look, and looking at that at the moment. There's no doubt that this is intended to keep investment back home. Uh, for, for, for the US and whatever about the big piles of cash being cash being moved back home, which doesn't really matter too much to us. What will matter to us is if if big companies are looking uh, at where to locate things in the next five or ten years, and, and and more of them decide to invest in America, and fewer of them decide to invest overseas. Look, there's no doubt that American companies are still going to be investing all around the world. That's just part of business nowadays. But are fewer of them going to be move are fewer going to be moving now than, than was the case before? Quite possibly so. It's a double and these tax changes do have some hidden things in them that could encourage that investment back back in the States. Sure. Of course it's a double edged sword for the American economy, isn't it? Because on the one hand you're going to encourage this investment back and yeah. it's good for the companies and so forth, but on the other hand it's going to leave a big hole in their budget. Yeah, absolutely. And I you know, the the economic boost is going to come in the next couple of years and the price is going to be paid thereafter. And we've seen from the recent government shutdown that the budget is as it has been over over the, over many it's years now on, on 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 a on a bit of a knife edge. And of course the other thing about America is the recovery there has been underway now for eight years. We're in the eighth year of an economic recovery. Usually the cycle lasts four or five years. Okay, growth was has been slower on average through the cycle than it would normally be in an economic recovery. But sooner or later, recovery is coming to an end. Fed interest rates are going up. So, you know, the best of the, the best of growth may, may, may be now. And, and Mr. Trump, as, as he moves into the latter half of his term, uh, could see more challenging times, I think. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to Joe Brennan from Davos, where he's reporting from the World Economic Forum. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, for this part of the show, I'm joined by phone from Davos by our Irish Times markets correspondent, Joe Brennan. He's been trudging through the snow, reporting on the latest musings of the global elite from the World Economic Forum. Now, Joe, thank you for joining us uh, from Davos. You might just, for the benefit of our listeners, you might just give us the context around the World Economic Forum. What's this annual meeting all about? Yeah, so this has uh, been going on since 1971. Uh, the German uh, engineer and economist Klaus Schwab um, set this up. Uh, Davos is the, the highest uh, town, we're told, in, in, in Europe. And as we've learned there, trying to get to it through uh, heavy snow on Monday, it's one of the more difficult places to get to as well. Um, so a lot of people actually find it very difficult to get here. Um, there's about 3,000 uh, participants at it this year. 
And this is basically bringing together the global elite, business leaders, politicians, academics, uh, and some some of the sort of great and good from the entertainment and social world voices as well. and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so the theme is uh, creating a shared future in a, a fractured world. Um, and some interesting, uh, I suppose the IMF got it off to a very good start, didn't they, with some uh, very strong predictions for global growth this year? Yeah, so the IMF came out on Monday and they raised their global economic forecast for this year and next, I think 3.9% they're forecasting for global growth for this year and next, which is kind of the broadest uh, rate of growth we've seen uh, since uh, 2010 across the world. Uh, big drivers there would be the, the US, uh, they're putting a lot of faith in the US uh, tax reforms, which they reckon will uh, add about 1.2% to GDP by 2020. Um, and also, there's a view that France, uh, with the new uh, president there, Emmanuel Macron, and his uh, yeah. reforming uh, vision uh, that he, that France will become a kind of a centre of growth. Uh, who would have thought it a few years ago? But the, the belief now that France will be okay. a, an engine driver in, in Europe. Joe, it strikes me that the two main speakers on day one were Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, and Justin Trudeau, the Canadian leader. What did they have to say? Yeah, so uh, Modi came over, I think, um, up until about three or four weeks ago, Modi would be seen as kind of the, the keynote speaker, the, the opening speaker. Uh, this is before Donald Trump to, uh, confirmed he was going to attend. Exactly. And I think the view was that he would give a similar speech to uh, that of uh, the Chinese uh, Premier Xi Jinping last year, which kind of set the uh, Davos agenda alight with his kind of uh, support of, of, uh, of globalization. And, uh, mm. and Modi himself, uh, didn't disappoint railing against protectionism and isolationism as well. Um, obviously, coming ahead of the uh, appearance of Donald Trump on, on Friday. Yeah. Now, Justin Trudeau is also there, probably the hot ticket on day one, and he hit on corporate greed and gender equality as his themes. Yeah. So th- these are themes that uh, Trudeau would be pushing himself uh, in, in Canada. And again, it went down very well with the local crowd here, even though he was actually holding up a mirror to uh, corporate leaders uh, that they need to uh, take measures to not just be looking to uh, drive up profits by uh, pushing down employee benefits and and trying to avoid tax all over the place, but really to become good uh, corporate uh, citizens. And gender is is a big topic for him as well. He was basically saying that companies, it's not only the good thing to do, but the right thing to to do and the smart thing to do to actually narrow that gender gap. And he quoted a McKenzie report that said that uh, the Canadian economy, I think the next seven or eight years, could be boosted to the tune of about 150 million uh, Canadian dollars. Um, as a result of uh, if the if the gender gap is tightened or narrowed. Now, on your travels around Davos, you've also discovered that investors are primed for another share sale in AIB. There's, there's a market appetite out there for more AIB shares. Tell us about that. Yeah, so speaking to um, uh, to Michael Lavelle, who is the head of corporate banking, uh, corporate investment banking for uh, Citigroup for Ireland and the UK. Uh, Citigroup would have been one of eight. Uh, investment banks and, and securities firms that worked with the department on the sale of a 28.8% stake in, in AIB last year, which is well received. And the shares themselves, as we could see, are up almost 30% from the 440 uh, euros at which they priced in, in, in June of last year. And he's saying that the, the market is there, obviously, it's up to the government at the end of the day. But uh, Investors do love the AIB story, the, the fact that it's well capitalised. There is a potential return of excess capital over time. 
Uh, there's a dividend play in that AIB has been paying a dividend, uh, returned to dividend last year for the first time since 2008, ahead of the main rival, Bank of Ireland, which is expected to pay a dividend uh, this year. And what about interest in Bank of Ireland? Because the, the state still owns a, a 14% stake in the bank. Would Is there a market appetite out there for Bank of Ireland shares? Yeah, if you look at the valuation of the two banks, uh, I think there was a view that maybe uh, maybe six months ago that they may go and sell uh, Bank of Ireland shares for AIB. But if you look at where they're trading, AIB's shares are trading at 1.2 times uh, the, the value at which the bank values its own assets, whereas Bank of Ireland is trading at a discount it's, uh, at one time. So it'd be hard to justify going out and selling Bank of Ireland when you can actually get a premium for, for, for AIB shares. I suppose what's dragging Bank of Ireland to an extent is the fact that it is very much exposed to Brexit. Uh, 40% of its loan book is in the UK. And also, Bank of Ireland is a bit behind in terms of its uh, IT transformation program. It's in the middle of a 900 million program trying to update yeah. its systems. And we still don't have a view, as to, we just still don't have a clarity from the bank as to where that will take them from an sure. area point of view okay. and from other kind of financial targets. Now, it's day two at Davos, and Christine Lagarde has been speaking, and she's uh, expressed uh, her interest, if you like, in wealth taxes being used to help narrow the yawning income gap between the young and old across Europe. Yeah, so it's kind of one of the themes uh, that Davos is looking at is just the, the, the generational divide uh, and the fact that since 2006 we've seen uh, across Europe that uh, elderly people, uh, pensioners have seen their incomes go up, whereas uh, working people, their their, their incomes are, are flat. And then you see that uh, youth unemployment, which had peaked at, what, 25% in 2013, um, has only come off marginally, so they are disenfranchised. The problem there for 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 uh, for the politicians is that it's older people that generally vote. So it's not in their interest to push push through uh, policies that would favour younger people. But she's saying that needs to be done in order to protect younger people. All right, Joe. And just uh, finally and very quickly, uh, if you don't mind, uh, while you've been away, Liam McLaughlin, the head of retail. Uh, in Ireland for Bank of Ireland has uh, stepped down and Jerry Mallon has announced his resignation as CEO of Ulster Bank. Uh, any thoughts? Did it come as a surprise to you? Um, I think there was a view that, that Liam would stay on, particularly the fact that he that there was one stage he had gone for the job, uh, the main job, and uh, obviously HSBC CEO, or sorry, uh, HSBC executive Francesca McDonough came over and, and got uh, the job to follow on from uh, Richie Boucher. Uh, Liam apparently had gone for that job, so there was some rumblings. Uh, but the Jerry, yeah, sure, uh, maybe maybe the McLaughlin one isn't so surprising. But what about Jerry Mallon? He's there less than two years with Ulster Bank, and he's going to, to the UK to head Tesco, uh, Tesco's bank. Yeah, I, mean, I think it raised a lot of questions about uh, what noises he was getting from RBS about his intentions with uh, Ulster Bank in Ireland, and whether there really was uh, the capacity to kind of build out the kind of challenger banks that they were uh, looking to, to to make uh, Ulster Bank in, into. I mean, even when they decided a few years ago that they were going to remain in Ireland, they did highlight the fact that uh, it needed to, it, it lacked scale uh, and needed to lower its uh, cost income ratios. Uh, so there was a lot of kind of uh, uncertainty as to how they were going to get there on their own. Um, you'd have to question uh, what RBS have been saying in the background. Now, again, RBS have been uh, receiving some of the, what, 15 16 billion uh, that they injected into the bank in the crisis. I think last, I think yesterday, uh, 
uh, they sent over 1.5 billion things, about 3 billion that they sent over since May 2016. So they're beginning to claw back some of that money. All right, Joe, we'll leave it there. Uh, good luck in Davos and uh, keep on trudging through the snow. I hope, I hope you're not <laughs> snowbound uh, before you get home. Great stuff. Lovely. Thanks, Joe. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Owen Burke Kennedy, Cliff Taylor and Joe Brennan. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.